already. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Women's Hour. I'm not sure how you guys are seeing me, but we have just spent about 20 minutes trying to unblurry me. And then I realized people pay good money for this kind of filter. So think of this as a RuPaul filter from season two ongoing. It's really annoying. I hope it does not put people off. Um, we are so excited today. Obviously, I have my trusty sidekick, Aisha. Say hello. Hi. Hey. And we have Ghislaine. How long have we wanted you on this show? Oh, I've been wanting to come on forever and a day. So I was really exciting, jumping like a kid when I saw the invite. So I'm really, really grateful to be here. And it's lovely to see you. We haven't met in a while. And lovely to meet you, Aisha. So yeah, it's all good. Same. And today is the launch of your book, Living While Black. Yeah, it is. And I have it here, my baby. Oh, gosh, it felt really like a birth. I haven't had an easy birth, never. So that's just to give you a sense of how difficult it has been at times to write the book, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, okay, first of all, like this book is, for me, it was a hard read. It was a hard read and I, I saw one of the very early editions and I was really grateful for the bit every, at the end of every chapter. Did that go to the final? Final. It's so interesting you say that actually because I was a little bit resistant to include the reflections and the exercise but since people have read the book everyone's come back and say this is really helpful thank you so much that helped me to ground myself to text talk about what I had just read so it was a good publishing idea I think. <laughs> It was a really good idea because I was mad. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like when you're reading those stories, I mean, will you start? Sorry, I should go on. I was just going to say because I thought it's you very rare that we have. Aisha. Yeah, I did. I was just going to say that um, it's very rare that we have psychotherapeutic advice aimed specifically at us. And so for me, when I found that and was able to read those parts, that was a relief. And it was a joy to have things that was, were niche instead of it kind of being a very generic, broad brush yeah. Um, yeah. advice. So yeah, I was grateful for those also. They're really Thank amazing. You. It was all around a good idea. So <laughs> my, my resistance wasn't warranted. It really, really was. And it was really needed at the end of those chapters because there was some really heavy stuff in it. I mean, first of all, um, gosh, what was the process for writing it? We had Adam Elliott Cooper on. Um, he had basically said with his book, uh, police, we'll have to put it into the thing. It's about black British resistance to policing. He had, I met Adam, gosh, about 10 years ago. And he interviewed me because of my previous work as a prison officer. And he basically got a lot of articles together over the years and eventually they turned into his first book. What was your process? Because I saw lots of writing from you, um, really selfless, like articles that were needed over the years. You obviously did that bit um, with the now defunct, I'm so annoyed about it, writers of color, um, predatory peacekeepers. That's how I know your work. So was your work like a series of articles? Feel free to jump in, Aisha, it's not that often. We only have one guest. And last week we had like about six, so, um, we're giving you all our attention today. So we normally will have two minimum. So I used to just jump right in whenever. It was um, just yes. to add Okay, so I thought my, my process wasn't that dissimilar to Adam. Um, 
this process, there was a lot of articles that I've written over the years. There was a lot of research that I had done um, over the years. There was stuff that I had written for my studies, for my doctoral thesis in the book. Um, and so that is why I think that sense that everyone says it's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy because even though it was written relatively, well, actually very, very quickly, the amount of thinking, the amount of feeling, the amount of reflection, the amount of trauma that made its way into the book span of a decade, I would say possibly close to two decades. And that's why you get that sense of there's a lot in, in the book. So it was a combination of writing new material, doing new research and combining that with the stuff that I have um, already written and collected over the years. And did you find yeah. it exhausting? I mean, I, the process, because it feels to me when I read it, it feels like you've given a lot of you yeah. and a lot of your own experience and your own pain and your own learning. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I think at the time to get through the book, I needed to just dissociate from it. I, didn't, I needed to just disconnect, to just keep going because the time pressure was quite intense. I had three and a half months, just under four months to write the book. And just it was go, 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 go. And so when the draft was accepted, you know, within about what, 48 hours, the tears the tears kept flowing and flowing. And I think I probably cried half my lifetime of tears after the book was, was accepted. I'd say, gosh, for about three, three, four weeks, I was really, really tearful. And so all the emotion that I had to cut off from to just be pretty much at head level to see the, pro the project to completion caught up with me really quickly. So I guess in the moment, I wasn't too connected. It wasn't too tough. And then I learned how I have mastered the art of compartmentalizing stuff. So when the thing was done, it was time to feel. And boy, oh boy, did I feel what I needed to feel. It came, no doubt. I mean, I can't. I can't. Sorry, Ava, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, you speak about, com I can't say the blimmin' word, compartmentalizing, which is literally my whole entire life. There were certain things I've in the book, so don't take it on, do not take this on. Um, because, if you, because of the trauma that I'm dealing with in my own life, I had to be really, really careful in terms of reading it. But you sort of said that everyone keeps saying it's heavy going. So can I just say at this moment, I am grateful for the book. Uh, by saying it's heavy going, it's not a criticism at all. No. I think the book is completely needed. And I'm not saying it's because there's no book that's really, you know, you're so often, and we've spoken about it on this show before, where we have to watch George Floyd being murdered over and over and over again. And your book is the first time, like you see it all the time, you see Eric Garner, you see Trayvon Martin. Um, you talk about Sean Rigg, you mentioned uh, Kingsley Burrell, like you said, too many names to mention, but nobody stops and says to you, hang on a second, are you okay? And I saw someone making the point the other day, um, which is a really good point. When you see Lee Rigby, who's been killed, you see him in his army uniform, you see him upright, maybe you see him with his family, but with these black people, like Mike Brown was left on the ground. So by saying it's heavy going, 
just to clarify to anybody who's who's watching and also to you as an author that is not a criticism at all i just really wanted to make that really clear it's important because our lives are heavy going and you have gone through like birth like childhood parenting like every single aspect of the black life and unfortunately it's heavy going that our lives are i was going to say there's a there's a relief in the recognition that's yeah. it might be because we live this this is hard so you know and actually i think that's part of that and you make that point excellently the need to compartmentalize is the cognitive dissonance is that we can't just live constantly thinking about what we're going to do you have to sometimes just just in order to get through the day but also there is a relief in recognition isn't there there's a relief yeah. in feeling seen and understood and giving, being given guidance as to, as to how to cope with it. And I definitely found, for me, that was something that I really felt reading the book. Because, yeah, it's hard, but it's hard to recognise and admit these things to ourselves anyway, you know? So, you know, the, the, that, what was it? I think, the, was the beauty of connection? Or I can't remember, I forget the phrase, I can look it up. But that's something that I got a lot of from your work. Do you think... <laughs> I do you think... Sorry. I was going to say, do you think, because you you're one of eight, right? Yeah eight children do you think um growing up in a household with uh well having that many siblings made you a more understanding person like in terms of how because the what your, your approach is so pragmatic it's so interesting i watch the way you deal with things obviously i i follow you online and stuff like that and what i really admire about you with um the subjects that you deal with is the way that you will not be taken off your path you know what I mean whereas I am not gonna lie well sometimes I'm getting better but I will just be distracted by like you know Tony Morrison Tony Morrison said the very serious function of racism is to distract what I find about you is you don't seem to let it distract you I mean is that just is that you or do you sometimes I, well, I'm, I'm human, so I, I think that, of course, sometimes I get distracted. Of course, sometimes I can be gaslighted. Of course, sometimes I doubt myself. I'm a human being. It's very difficult to hold on to um, a sense of who you are constantly, 100% of the time, under white supremacy, right, and under misogyny. Nobody can do it. Can do it. Uh, if someone tells you that they can do it 100% of the time, they're lying. It's not yeah. possible. But what I would say is that I'm an inner city child. People forget that. I'm a ghetto girl. This is really the formative years of my life. It's struggle. It's hustle. It's seeing you know, police brutality. It's seeing injustice. It's seeing how the system attempt to gaslight at collective level. It's having to see my parents, my mom, my fathers, my siblings, my relatives, my people fight this stuff constantly. So I didn't acquire the skills that I have acquired simply because I just have, you know, better personality or I'm just stronger willed. No, it's just I've had to navigate this shit for way too long and navigating this shit has equipped me with some skills that frankly, I wish that I didn't have, that I didn't need. That is the reality. So there is, um, of course, there are pros that comes with being quite street smart. I'm, I'm fearless right and and that can be 
that can be um, a, a really that can be a, a weapon that can be a tool, but also that can put you in situation where sometimes people say, you know what, just walk away, just back down. And so there's also that side in me where I'm so dogged against sometimes my better, my, 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 my better needs. So you know, it's mitigated. Uh, I've, I've, I've learned the life that I've learned living through what I've lived. On balance, it has served me well. On balance, it continues to serve me well. But there's always a shadow side to anything that might appear like, you know, like a quality or like a strength. And that's what I want people to remember. Things are always double-edged. Nothing is always ever, you know, it's a bad trait, it's a good trait, because we're complex people. Yeah. So do you feel like a lot of pressure as a role model then, or do you Whoa. just feel like- Whoa, slow you... down, slow down, Missy. <laughs> role, role model, <laughs> I, to who, to my kid, to anybody else, that is a scary thought. I, black I, women. Oh my God, I've black never women. even thought of that for myself, ever. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's true I've, though. I've, I've never thought of that for myself. And one thing that I do uh, and I aspire to, to do in my, in my scholarship and in my work is to say, listen, I'm not here to tell you how to lead your life. The book is not here to tell you how to live while black, right? But I'm here to expose some of the realities, some of the trauma, some of the difficulties. And I can tell you what the costs are if you take a particular path but essentially we only have one life to live so if anybody watch me and think oh she's such a great role model i resist that right you know why i resist that because i think that when we think about role modeling and we think about heroes heroes there's something that is a little bit a little bit unhelpful if not dysfunctional in that it can um, it can allow us to disconnect from our own power because, you know, she's a hero, she's a role model, or they can do it. Um, and so it sets people up to fail, first of all, but most importantly, it leaves people feeling helpless, right? And, and I don't want that. I want people to connect to their own strength and to their own power because it exists in all of us, right? It took me some time to realize how powerful I am. It really took me some years because society just drum it into us constantly. We're powerless, we're helpless. There's nothing we can do. This is just the way things are. It, do you know how much work it takes to actually uh, throw up this stuff? It's, it's hard, yeah, it's yeah. hard. Yeah, so you prefer, to, as opposed to saying a role model there, do you prefer to think of it as more as like we're all in a sisterhood together? Because yes. there are so many black women online, um, there's yourself, there's Kalechi. I don't want to start naming because then you forget someone and then, you know what I mean? <laughs> then you get a passive aggressive reply to one of your, like, do you remember me? There are lots and lots and lots. Um, Cause Kalechi just did a video. She's on my mind cause she did the video about strong black women yeah. um, that came out, which really moved me. And it was like, oh, you know, she just condenses these things down in the same way that you do. But you prefer to think of it as, as a sisterhood. Um, no, you're not going to trick me while I'm on this call by asking for chocolate that you know you're not allowed to know. Um, no. Um, <laughs> now everybody knows you just tried it. So, um, it, yeah. so you grew up in France. I grew um, up in France. I can't. 
I came in this country yeah. in my early 20s. What I wanted to, to ask is, does it shock you how little, considering it's just across the way, I mean, there's like a tunnel underneath the two countries, how little black people in the UK know about France? Because France is racist. Like, it's so racist. And we don't tend to, like, so do you guys, another place in Europe that's really racist is Italy, that a lot of people don't know about. Do the French know about Spain's Italy? Is it just, uh, huh? Spain's not Spain. great either. No, no, it's Spain. not. But what, no, no, Spain's horrible as well. But what I wanted to ask is, are you, are black people in France more aware of what's happening in the other EC countries? Um, or is it kind of like, because England, we're kind of ignorant. Do you know what I mean? Like we must have taken something from our white counterparts because we really don't know as much as we should about what's going, going on, you know, in these countries to our fellow black people. Mm -hmm. I, I'd say, well, remember, I've been in this country 15 over 15 years now, a lot more, I think 17 years. And the first, I say until my mid 20s, I'd say I was traveling back and forth, not really settled until I settled um, in, in, in this country. So at the time when I left um, France to come and migrate in the in the in the UK, I, I think I saw England and particularly London as a little bit as a heaven uh, when it came to equality. I think yeah. there was definitely uh, a sense of idealization. If you look at black and brown people who are French and live in this country, you'll find most of us are fairly educated people. Uh, they are people who left because they felt they were not going to get opportunities um, and chance to pursue their career and to um, go on. Oh, Ava, you're muted, darling. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, sorry, can go on. Sorry, Ghislaine. Yeah, no, it's not a problem. I know what it is to to work and have kids in the background. Um, so yes, I was saying that there is there's definitely many of us. Uh, I would say quite brainy. I would say quite intellectual people, highly educated people who left France because. They didn't believe that they were going to have opportunities to succeed in their career. I mean, I come from a generation of people where I'd say easily 50%, 50%, possibly even more, migrated, right? Migrated to England, migrated to the States, migrated to Canada. And, and uh, minority, minority migrated to other places and to the land of their ancestry. So there's definitely something that I think in my generation or people who are adjacent to our generation kind of saying, well, the world is our oyster, we'll go where opportunity arises. But actually having moved through the world and seen different places and now understanding Britain a bit better, please do not be fooled my people, right? Racism is sharp in England, right? It is not less racist than France at all. But well, this just is what I was going to ask. Yeah. Did, no, did you feel that? Very differently. Mm. Feel things look differently. It took me, listen, as a black French inner city child, right? It took me like 10 years at least 
to understand that in this country you don't say what you mean. I, I was I would just take things at face value constantly, right? I would just assume people are telling me the truth constantly. It took me a while to understand there's this game, there's this whole thing going on, there's this thing called um, what cynicism that you guys do, you know, brilliantly. I didn't I didn't get that. So obviously I got in a lot of trouble um, because I didn't really understand the patterns of communication, and I think that speaks to the nature of the racist animal that you are dealing with it is so 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 shifty it is so sneaky whereas in france i think most of the time you know who the hell you're dealing with even though things are starting to shift now probably shifted in the past five ten years or so but yes those were the main differences so it took me a while while i was in my bubble oh things are better in britain you know, it's not as bad as in France. And then, you know, 10 years or so, things caught up with me and I thought, oh, right. So they were actually calling you the N-word back then and you, you didn't actually understand, register what was happening. Yeah, so no, it's not yeah. for sure. Yeah, I, I wasn't saying that uh, England's better because I know it's not, but I was just saying we don't have that connection with French black people in the yeah, way to know what's going on. I definitely agree with you in terms of British racism is so insidious. It's so sly. It can be so indirect. Yeah. It can just be, you know what I mean? Like, you'd be like, you what? You know what I mean? That, that kind of level of sarcasm and that kind of level of just yes. that, that nasty little teasing. I always say that the, I mean, Britain is the motherland of racism. I think Jesse Jackson said that recently. And I always say that the Britain taught America everything it knows about racism, except how to keep quiet about it. Well, <laughs> I was Americans just out there say Britain, like, no, 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 do this like really, really slyly, like it's too much. The way that Americans have taken it, they've just taken it and run with it and it's more in your face. But yeah, that's what I prefer. Um, sorry, Aisha, what? Oh, I was just gonna say that the only reason that Ghislaine and many others are able to even think that Britain is a haven, um, compared to where they live is because of the history of lying about racism and yeah. presenting Britain or presenting itself as a non-racist country or a tolerant country because that's the best we can hope for. And I think that, yeah, you're completely right about the, um, about uh, we taught everyone everything they know except for how to tell the truth about it. It's completely true. You know, we lie that's about it. Quite also about the shiftiness it. and the changing face, like the goalposts are constantly changing depending yeah. on which environment you're experiencing racism in. You know, there's a football terrace or there's a workplace or there's an Oxford college or there's a restaurant or, you know, they all have little different ways of making sure, you know, yeah, ain't from well, around here. Exactly, is what I was going to say. Yeah, I think that what I'd actually was it's about, they know, they taught them everything they know except how to keep quiet about it. Britain's never been stupid enough to have, a, to have something like Jim Crow or apartheid. Or whatever, but we know it exists. It exists in completely different ways. Mm -hmm. So they can turn around and point at other people yeah. and say, "You're the wrong ones." They do the same yeah. with homophobia. They'll talk about, "Oh, look at what you lot are doing over there." I'm sorry, who put these laws in place? And they act like they're really above it all. Um, Ghislaine, sorry, were you trying to say something? No, I was going to say one thing that I've observed in this country as well that I didn't have this experience in France is often there's a lot more respectability to some degree. Um, and so I know that when I speak, 
I usually speak my mind. I think I'm quite a straightforward person, you know, rightly or wrongly. Uh, but I've had experience of black and brown people also trying to kind of uh, make me more palatable to whiteness. Um, you know, there's a lot of assimilation politics that, uh, interestingly, plays out quite covertly in this country. In France, we know that that is the dominant political um, discourse and aspiration is to everybody is assimilated into Frenchness. That's the fantasy. Of course, we know that's not quite right, but that is the fantasy. And then in England like to think of itself as we are multicultural society. Um, we, are, we, 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 tolerate, we tolerate people's different faith and culture and, um, and religion and ways of thinking. Actually, you don't. It's very insidious how people are forced to assimilate. So we back to actually in France, people will tell you, well, actually, you need to give up your blackness. You can't be black. I mean, there's that. You can't be black and French. Why do you need to be black if you're French? You're French already. That's what you are, right? Even today, we still have difficulty accepting blackness as um, an identity, as something that is socially, socially significant. But in this country, there is this notion that, yes, we accept black people. There is this hyper, hyper, hyphenated, hyphenated identity, right? Jamaican British or Pakistani British or British Pakistani, do you know what I mean? In France, we don't have that, you're French full stop. But actually, in within institution, within kind of cultural norms, there is still a very strong pressure to assimilate into um, certain ways of thinking, of behaving, of speaking, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still a very strong covert insidious hegemony that we don't get in France, because France is like, well, you're French or you get the hell out. That's basically the politics of France. Yeah, yeah even the way that France colonizes is, is crazy. Like, um, if you go to a place like Martinique, I've got family in Martinique um, that moved from Dominica. If you, even if you go there, you will see the, the structures, the buildings, um, places like St. Bart, you don't even know if you're still in the Caribbean. I remember having to leave Dominica after hurricane, no, it was tropical storm Erica that time and went over to Martinique to get back to England. And honestly, I was just, it was the first time I'd been there. And I was like, this is not, this feels like Europe. Like, and someone said, no, the French, the way they colonize is very, very different. And they will ensure that, you know, you have to go and live there for a year and all that stuff if you're studying. And they make sure they try to get their culture, you know, completely into like Jewish people complain that they had to change their names in France, weren't allowed overtly Jewish names. They were really encouraged to change them mm. and stuff. But I mean, so obviously growing up in France shaped your thoughts and your stuff on race. There's a couple of stories in your book that really got to me. Obviously the first one is gonna be what happened to your mum. Mm. I mean, like that must've been one of the stories that you had to turn off from as you wrote that. That was just to me, like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't. And that's why I was so glad at the end of that chapter, it was like, how do you feel? Write this down. I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God it was there. So yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that was a really, really moving story. And I think everybody's gonna thank you for putting stuff in there that, that's that personal. 
thank you um, very much. I think I needed to, to, to take it out there. It's not the first time that I wrote, I wrote about this story. I've just read a, um, a review of the book from someone who reviewed the book for the British Susan Cousin, right? Do you know Susan Cousin? She's like a therapist, right? She deals with issue of, of, um, of race and culture. But she did a review of the, of, of, of the book and the way that she described this incident, I guess gave me new light because she said my mom was assaulted, which she was. Uh, she was assaulted because she was protecting my. Ch she was protecting her children and other children, and you know, I've I've only ever clocked that she was also protecting other children, because in my mind she was protecting us, right? She was protecting me, and she was uh, protecting my sister. And then she said, "Well, she was also protecting other children," and I thought, "Yes, that's right." But why haven't I connected? to that um, all these years. And that I get that gave me a level of closeness between the work that I do and my mom's politics, right? And um, and her history and also the place that she that she played in the community, even though that didn't make its way into, into the book. So it needed to go out because I think that um, I am not alone in having experienced more um violent uh brutal expressions or manifestation of racism right i'm not the only person i was spared i was spared in that in that incident it could have been me as well and i think it was important that we remember how brutal and irrational racism and anti-blackness is fundamentally yeah i i mean I like sort of reading the stories and stuff and some of the stories, and like you said, you're not the only one that's been through it. We've all got stories of when um, we were kids that something, I tell a story about when I was in boarding school and got very angry when I was reading an Enid Blyton book and it said, um, it was a famous five thing. And, and when I read the line, I threw the book across the room and the teacher sort of grabbed me by the arm and half lifted me and dragged me to the door. And I was going, you don't understand, you don't understand. And I showed him what was in the book. And as he was plonking me outside the classroom, another teacher came by and he said, oh, what's she, what's she done now? And because um, the book had like, he said, George came up from the coal hole black as an N-word. Um, and so I showed him and then the teacher laughed with the other teacher, he goes, what's she done now? And he goes, she seems to be upset the book has her name in it. Now, what I find really irritating, I don't know, what I kind of liked about your book as well, and also want to ask you, when you tell these stories, because I tweeted that before, and that's something that's personal and painful and buried for me. And it takes a lot for black people to recant these stories a lot of times. And you'll have some idiot that will come underneath, yeah, of course that happened, or yeah, chalk this under things that didn't happen. Whenever you've, because of the environment that you work in and maybe the audiences you have, have you ever experienced anything like that? And what would you say to black people who feel reluctant to tell these stories, to you know, give their testimonies because of yeah, this treatment? So I would say, first of all, you don't owe the world your story. That's number one. Uh, you have to look after yourself. Now, as a as a writer and as a clinician, I'm always having to weigh in the impact of telling the story and the impact 
of receiving the story, right? We tell story because we want to connect. We, we tell story because we want people to feel seen and held and heard and that they are not alone. And so we have to weigh in the pros and, and the cons. Now I tell the story because I'm a, story, I'm a storyteller. There's no other way for me to be. That's just what I am. I tell stories, I tell my story, I tell other people other people's stories. Um, have I experienced some backlash? Well, I've gotten a lot of, of, of difficulties, I think, more professionally than actually within the community or within social, within social media. But that is, that is because the story challenged whiteness or exposed whiteness and exposed racism in a way that they don't want it to be exposed. So that aside, in relation to trolling, I think on balance, when I see the shit that you go through, and when I see other people, I think I'm actually not getting the worst of it. Actually, I've received an email, and that was one in a, you know in a blue moon from a um, someone that was vexed around critical race theory, and basically sent me um, a racist email questioning black people's intelligence. I mean, the classic, the classic anti-black stuff, and I responded in kind because I wanted to have fun. And sometimes you do want to have fun, right, with this lot. And so I responded in kind, I sent him a letter, a very proper in, uh, letter, and I asked him whether his insecurity came from the fact that he had a small D, uh, and whether perhaps if he learned to loosen up and dance a little bit, he might be less sexually insecure. But I mean, it's that's the way that I dealt with it, right, rather than, than cry and and become upset because what we want to understand when it comes to racism and to uh, and to whiteness is that there is a very strong sadistic element in the violence that we get and when you're dealing with sadism what you don't want to do is to gratify the impulse right and we gratify the impulse when we are hurt when we are distressed when we feel helpless this is what get let people like that off so if you don't play off the I'm a victim, you hurt me, you call me the N-word, boo, 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 right? They don't know what to do with themselves. They really don't know what to do with themselves and you deprive them of their, of their power. But I did that because I don't have to deal with that very often. If I was surrounded with trolling every day, all day, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't engage. I would just block. So just to sum up, you don't owe anyone your story. A lot of us find that telling our story is empowering, not only to ourselves but to other people. And how you deal with troll must constantly be a function of where you are in relation to your well-being and in relation to your to your health. But yes, you don't owe you don't owe anyone anything, whether trolls or even community members. What you owe yourself is to be well and to thrive. That is what you owe yourself first and foremost. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's Maya Angelou has spoken about, uh, you know, when people ask you how you are, you say you're fine because you don't want them to know that there's a victim in the neighborhood. You need to like it's, it's kind of armor, really, in that kind of way. Um, another black woman who I've already mentioned this morning, um, who I really think about a lot when I read your stuff and I see the way that you deal with stuff so unapologetically and so truthfully is Toni Morrison. Yes. Um, like the way she writes and the way you write. And one thing that you'd said, I don't even know if we were on camera, if we were still chatting and trying to, you know, <laughs> adjust cameras at the time, but I really want this in the show, is what you said and what was really important is you said, this book is actually for us. 
it, by us, I mean black people. I mean, that's what I found great about it. It was literally like, I don't care what they're gonna say. I don't care if you wanna, you know, and you brought up sadism and it really is a lot about sadism as well. And so yeah, thank you for writing for us so brilliantly. Um, and I was gonna ask a question, but I actually want to say something. Actually, it ties into what you were saying, that, um, the fact that it's for us and uh, sort of relating back to what Ghislaine was saying about whether we tell our stories and what the potential effects are. And I know from my own being therapized uh, about telling stories and that can actually, I know, right? Um, telling stories and how that dependent on where you are in relation to the story, where your emotions are in relation to the story, what it can have negative effects or it can have positive effects. If you're just retelling a story that's actually traumatic for you to tell, that's not necessarily always helpful for you and also dependent on how it's received. But I was going to go on to say that also, how great is it that there's genuine explanations of what trauma does to the body, what trauma does to the mind, what trauma does to reactions. Ghislaine, thank you. Like, you know, how many, I don't know, and certainly older than me, I'm 39 and a half, black women who are older than me that haven't engaged with therapy and haven't engaged with therapeutic texts and certainly haven't engaged with psychotherapeutic texts wouldn't necessarily know all of those stages and all of the effects that surviving trauma, living through trauma, continually being re-traumatized have on a person within a context of white supremacy. So there's also just trauma, just you can have PTSD from a variety of things, but there's also, there's a racial element. And I just think that's huge. I mean, yes, we know it's out there, but there are very few texts that raised nicely and specifically yeah. the two together. So. That was another thank you, but it was very relative to what you guys were saying. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean it feels um, a bit revolutionary to me. <laughs> it's true. Um, in terms of, of, yeah, the trauma and stuff like that, that you have to kind of relive and relive. What I found good, and because I've, it, it, obviously white people can buy it and when comes to buy it, I read it. I just liked it being so much um, for us in terms of, and why I found it important was like, when I read Nelson Mandela's The Long Walk to Freedom, um, he'd said when him and Oliver Tambo had their law practice, they knew they were going to court every single day to lose. And people kept saying, why are you going up against the apartheid system when you know you're gonna lose these court cases? It's a white person's word against a black person's word. And he said, it's uh, to keep a record keeping a record and I feel that that's what your book has done is kept a record I'm very self-taught when it comes to blackness and I'm learning all the time and when it comes to to from the way that I was raised the way that I was educated I grew up in you know I remember being in boarding school in prep school being told that we're the leaders the future leaders of the world you're the best you're the best and I remember looking from side to side going apart from my brother no one else here looks like me and then I, so I would notice things like that. We're going, how can we be the best when we're not here? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I had like a really sort of defiant attitude towards it. And then that was things that I learned going on later to the prison service when I'd walk through the remand wing and go, why are we all here? These are unconvicted people. Why is this 96% black? Why is this, why is that? So in terms of you, um, growing up and stuff, who were the influences that that really got to you? Maya Angelou, I used to just pretend was my mum at certain points in my life, especially when I had to get my own mother out of my life for all lots of reasons. Um, but I would start to look look at other black women's writings and stuff. For you, who who was it? 
for people that don't know? What I I I want to say I want to speak to two things. First of all, no one comes to mind, right? My only role models that I had growing up, if I can call them that, were my parents. They were my mom primarily more than my dad, my mom and my elder sisters. Because A, they were so fearless. I mean, my mom is just, is, she's just a monument really um, in relation to the shit that she had to go through and in relation to her beauty. So I, I, I remember thinking that this is what I want to be. She was so, she was so, my mom is very tall. Right, she's even taller than me, she's slightly taller than me. And she's very statuesque. And so she's very non-deferential. So you can imagine, you know, being in France in the 70s, um, arriving in the late 60s or what have you, and living through from the 70s up to today. And, you know, people expect black women to bow their head down, right? My mom doesn't do that, right? My mom's chin is always up. And I want you to picture that because that was one thing that I was really embarrassed about when I was growing up. We would go to the super, imagine French supermarket, right? So the equivalent of Morrison or Tesco, what have you. And she would go there and we'd do shopping and she would take an African basket, right? She would put the shopping in the African basket and put the basket on her head, right? And so, She's already like, I don't know, six foot or what have you. And so imagine all the whole store looking at this African woman, right? Really tall and striking with a, with a basket on her head as though she was in the middle of, I don't know, Tanzania or somewhere. Uh, so that's just to tell you what she is. She is absolutely so proud of being black, of being African and non-differential. So what I got from her was a sense of, you don't take crap from nobody, you stand from yourself. Uh, and actually you can, you can achieve what you want, but as you go in the book, that it, it wasn't something that wasn't challenged, the self-belief that she had in her and the belief that she had in her children, there was always people trying to cut her to size, right? But if you ask me, other than my sister, my eldest sister, so sister number one, and my mom, I didn't have any, any other role model. I became aware of black literature and uh, you know, the political aspect of blackness in this country. Like you, I am in the, I'm in the main self-taught. And you've made a point, Aisha, when you say, well, non-therapic people don't know about trauma and white supremacy and what it does to the body and to the mind. But let me just tell you, sadly, my darling, that white therapists and mental health professionals in the main don't know either what white supremacy, whiteness and trauma does to the black body and to the black mind. So it's, it's, it's a text that is important, of course, for black people. You are my number one target, right? It was written and flinchingly with black people in mind. People want to come in, great. As I say, great, pick the book, read, but sit at the back, right? Do not take center stage. This is not the space for you to do your musing, your mea culpas, your, your commitment. It's not. If you want to learn, really, you want to connect with your heart, as I said in the book, come in. If you want to come in and be voyeuristic, right, and do trauma, kind of ex exhibition and, and porn, right? And get off from the suffering and the pain that are described in those pages. Please don't pick up the book. Pick up the book if you want to really learn to do better. But other than that, remember that this book, it's, it's, it speaks to blackness and it's all about blackness.
But that is why it's revolutionary. You know, you, you make that point. You're saying that why, and I think you're, I, I know you're right. But I mean, it's got to be a good point that white therapy doesn't even make and hasn't made account for this for well, hundreds of years now. So why would they? Why would why would they have any knowledge? Which means that's a big deal. I specifically specifically do not do therapy. Everyone thinks I'm absolutely crazy. They're like, after you lost your daughter, this and that, this is going on. Why aren't you in therapy? I'm like, hell no. Because honestly, I have always found like white therapists, the couple times I've been in my life have made it so much worse for me. And so I kind of decided to sort of do it with books and teachings and, you know, so you yourself taught about black history and sort of, you know, you've picked up the books in the same way that I have. You were really lucky to have a mum like the one you have and you were really, and, and your family. Like there's lots of people who, who don't have that. Um, so are there like just five black writers that you would recommend to anybody? Or you don't, don't even put it as five, just like really strong for you. For people who are like, well, I haven't got a mum to look to. Um, obviously, pick up someone that you can read. That's always that always my politics, right? Uh, a lot of the time, people recommend books to you, and you want to engage with the text, and you think it doesn't speak to you. You can't penetrate the word. Of course, sometimes there's some defence, and there might be some reason why you're not ready to access the book, right? But stick to something that speaks to you. My Number one inspiration, it's Fanon. I can't hide it. It's everywhere I write. It has shaped my thinking, my worldview. Uh, that is not to say that the guy is not problematic in places. He's a man, right? No man is not without problems, I'm afraid. So there has, he, he has problems. But in terms of his understanding of the psychology and the psyche, their intersection, um, his questioning of psychology, psychoanalysis, uh, and, and kind of the pathologization of the colonial subject, there is, for me, there's nothing um, that I can't learn, that I can learn about racism that is not in Fanon's writing. That is, to me, there's nothing. Now, of course, I like all the, the classic authors. You know, I love Baldwin, I love Lord, pick up Audre Lorde, um, uh, Angelou, Morrison, all the classic black texts go and, 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 uh, and, uh, and uh, go and read them. There is, my, for, for me, I also think that there's a lot of loss in the way that the point that you made, Ava, um, around we're not connecting uh, as a diaspora post-European country, right? So we don't know about the scholarship of Portuguese black writers. They exist, where are they? I don't know that. I want to know them, right? How about the Italian thinkers of color? Where are they? We don't know them. So our thinking is really, really um, American-centric, right? We are depriving ourselves. I know a little bit about the French, of course, because I'm French, but even then, most of my thinking when it comes to race has been influenced aside from maybe Fanon and Césaire, right, have been influenced by African-American writers. Now, that's not a loss, you know. It's great that we have this richness. It's great that we can draw parallel in experience. But what I'm saying is that we need to also connect with local knowledge, right? And local knowledge doesn't only come from scholars. Talk to your grandparents if they are alive. Oh my God, how I wish my grandparents were alive. They're a rich source of knowledge, of knowing, of information, 
of, of um, historical legacy. And then we go, this is what black people do, right? We say, oh, black history books don't say nothing about our history. History books don't even talk about, um, about slavery or enslavement or about colonialism in the way that is from our own perspective. Listen, do you even talk to your nan? Do you talk to your nan? Do you actually record your nan? Do you keep document what they have to say? Do you understand that when they're gone, they're gone, right? And all their stories, all the perspectives that they have are gone. If you can, and some of us can't, right? Because things, life is complex. If you can, you have elders in your family, in your community, please speak to them. Not all knowledge has to come from people with degrees. Remember that. I think that is really important. I mean, you've got a story in the, in your book about what your stepdad had told you. Um, I, I, I think gathering up the stories and stuff like that, there's sometimes, like you said, it doesn't have to be a scholar. And one of the stories that you told, which I still heave about to this day, is about the, the guy who's been disciplined at work, sorry, um, it's it work, right? And the white man spat in his mouth and made him swallow the phlegm. I cannot. So those kind of stories are the only, you know, that you can get from sort of generation to generation. So what would you say, and I really want to hear what you've got to say this because it's something that annoys me and makes me mad. Um, not going to go into why. I want to hear what you've got to say. What do you feel when you see young black people walking around in t-shirts saying, I'm not my ancestors? or their white stuff like, yeah, watch yourself because I'm not my ancestors. I find it, I can understand, but I find it myself disrespectful. I find it disrespectful because actually the only reason why you, you work in this earth is because of your ancestors, number one. I think that to me, and maybe that's part of the um, African worldview that I have inherited, most of it has been lost, unfortunately, is that you can't thrive if you disrespect your ancestors. It's not going to happen, right? I, I really believe that this is something that whiteness has uh, forced us to disconnect with ancestral wisdom and ways of thinking and ways of um, of being in the world. Um, I think I want to reconnect with that. So to those youngsters, I'm not sure what point they are trying to make, i.e. our ancestors were weak enough um, to be uh, enslaved and captured or, or what. I'm not sure what the sentiment is. Uh, I think that this is also a white supremacist myth. There's always been rebellion. There's always been resistance. There's always been defiance throughout the centuries. We were never passive recipient of white supremacy, right? And of whiteness. And to just insinuate that this is what our ancestors, we, we, which we share, are about, I think it's very disrespectful, but more than being disrespectful, it's actually a false, it's actually inaccurate historically. So I would encourage people to connect with what it is that they're trying to do. You can connect to your fiercenessness and to your internal power without being disrespectful to people who came before you. They came before you so you can exist. And I don't know whether people have this notion of that, right? But for our ancestors, we would not be here. We would not be here. Yeah, exactly. That's why I kind of, that's what bothers me about it because, and you brought up the point, what stories are you listening to? Who, I mean, you know, we're not being told about the slave rebellions. 
and all that kind of stuff as well. I, I also found this attitude, interesting enough, in, in Israel, when they were speaking about Holocaust survivors, I remember speaking to an ex of mine about it and going, what? Have you not heard of the Warsaw Ghetto? Have you not heard of this? Have you not heard of that? How do you not understand that people were fighting? They did fight back. They sat and they plotted and they did things like that. Um, you know, they, there was many, many uprisings um, and we don't get to hear about those things. Aisha? I was going to agree with you, the, the ahistoric and also the fact that what, what are you listening to? You know, so and I think it's interesting that this is the end result of a lot of white supremacy, exactly like actually Ghislaine was saying. The end result is that black people could be walking around with T-shirts slagging off the fight, the strength, the endurance, the wisdom, the love of their ancestors. For who? who like, who's this to impress? Who, where do you, like, it's such a misguided attempt at gaining strength. It's, it's actually really sad, isn't it? You know, to think that there's young black people who are looking, trying to find something to be proud of and something to pin their colours to, pin their flag to, and they chose that because they're so misinformed. They have such lack of access or um, to the real stories and things. There's so much we could be proud of. You know, it's not easy sometimes in the face of white supremacy, but we do it. We, we keep fighting, we keep looking. And that's where they kind of ended up. I actually think that's really heartbreaking and massively disrespectful, obviously, to, to give it. Um, you know, I had like a little question that I just wanted to ask Elaine. How did you feel when you started reading black authors after having your mum and your sisters and your family as role models like I know I mean Ava and I have talked about it a lot that when you do discover this stuff it's it's an interesting place to be isn't it bittersweet almost I mean amazing but also it's uh, it's um, even though I didn't have I didn't have access to black authors much uh, for much of my childhood I would say uh, my, 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 my father's have always been my father and my mother's I have two fathers, I should probably become clear, but I've, I've always been kind of um, defiant of whiteness, right? Um, so for them, I, I heard story of, of um, the colonial thought and decolonization. But curiously, I didn't know about Fanon until I moved to, to, to England, which is very interesting. Even when we studied the black authors, uh, when I was at, when I did my baccalaureate, right? We studied uh, Césaire and Senghor and the whole Negritude movement. We studied the poetry and it was completely divorced from colonialism, right? It was completely divorced from the political context. So when I learned and I picked up the language and I picked up the concept, most importantly, it gave me a frame to make sense of what my mom was doing. Because when you look at this tall black woman with a basket on her head, you think, what the hell is this mom? You're just trying to be embarrassing. But actually what she was trying to teach us that you need to be proud, <laughs> be proud of your ancestry, be proud of your Africanness, you know, stand tall, stand defiant. I didn't get that. I just saw black women trying to be embarrassing. So when I had this concept, they gave me a lens to understand what my mom was trying to part with. Love that. Um, it gave you a framework. It just allowed you to sort of put it all in context instead of just seeing it as this not abstract, but you kind of abstract in a teenage sense, just the, oh God, you know. I can both relate. There is honestly being a tall black woman comes with a whole other set Thank of you. stuff. I mean, I'm pretty much six feet tall. It comes with a whole set of stuff that people don't really understand. 
um, going forward from that, you're obviously a parent yourself now and you're raising your kids here in the UK. Um, we've had sort of the black nursery manager on, we had Liz on speaking about how, you know, young, the criminal criminalization, the stereotyping, the labeling of black children um, starts, you know, she works in nurseries, it starts from there. Yeah. Um, also, you've grown up with this kind of knowledge and we've all kind of said the same thing. It is bittersweet. I'd love to be Kemi, I'd love to for a minute be uh, whatever that girl is who does this, she does a, a, a show and she's always, you know, talking about, oh, stop and search more black people. I don't even want to name her by giving her any credit. We know about the boy with the Afro, We the badly, badly, badly attended to Afro. So sometimes I can kind of see, because it is, it is a lot, it is heavy, it's a lot to carry. Um, you, you know, you speak about black women always carrying things on their back, like we have to do those things. So when it comes to, with the knowledge that you have and you having your children, you talk about it in the book, but just for everybody here, how, how do you navigate around your kind of knowledge and, you know, teaching that to your kids? Or do they tend to pick up just anyway, just from hearing conversations? I think there are aspects that that have to be conscious that certainly I aim to 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 be deliberate around. So, for example, when my sister, when my daughter was recently uh, assaulted at school, it was a very very deliberate uh, response to show her that actually we don't stand for this kind of treatment that being abused by anyone, let alone someone in position of trust and authority. Um, is not something that we are going to tolerate. So that is something that I narrate, that said, I'm not going to stand for that. We are going to make a complaint, not because we expect that the school is going to say, hey, put our hands up there, beware racist, sorry about that. No, that's not going to happen, but actually is to make a point that actually we stand up and part of standing up and part of sticking up for ourselves is actually almost demonstrating our humanity that we are people and that we know that at least officially we have right and so those are kind of deliberate moment learning moment right resistance moment that we have to do together like when i decided that i would go and pick her up with flowers and chocolate i have to do that right i was making a point because she was humiliated publicly i wanted her to be loved to be praised publicly as well to balance that. So those are very deliberate political acts, right? She probably like my mom will think, what the hell man, why would she come with flowers? That's good. But maybe later she would also understand why this is the stance that I took. But you know, as a parent, your child are going to pick up your politics, right? She saw me writing the book, right? She would say, oh, you know, when you wrote this, you were really upset. Oh, that was really, really sad. Oh, you cried a lot. She would say this type of thing because she, um, she sees me. The boys are a bit more distant when it comes to emotion. I would like, uh, you know, I hate to say perhaps stereotypically, but the, 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 the girl, she would pick up a lot more, whether it's said or it's not said. And I think that's one of the, one of the mistakes that our parents make, right? Or a lot of parents make is that they think they can spare us, right? They think, oh, well, they're too young. We don't have to tell them about this stuff. 
that actually think about when you were five, six, seven, didn't you pick up what was going on in the house anyway, even though it right. wasn't necessarily said, you knew when there had been an argument, you knew when you needed to be a bit more cautious with mommy because she wasn't in a good mood, you knew when there was tension in the house, right? And a lot of the time they came and they spoke about their own experience of othering and discrimination, so they pick it up. So. They will pick up stuff that you that you say and, and that you don't say. Some stuff I'm afraid you have to be deliberate, conscious um, about. But most importantly, it's also important to give children framework, right? Um, to externalize what is put onto them, which is something that I speak a lot in the book, right? Because children internalize, like all children, black children, right? Something happens around you, it's your fault. It's because you haven't been a good person. That's what children do. So you need to have parents that say to the kid, actually, no, racism, nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how, how, how good a person you are, how kind a person you are, how loved, a, you know, you are. Yeah, you said that um, you felt sad when she'd asked the question, is it because I'm, I'm black? Is it because I'm dark skinned girl? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how did you? It's hard because my 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 girl is is dark skin. She's actually darker than you ever, in terms of skin tone. And so, of course, she has the same reference point as society. She knows that mom is lighter skin. She knows that mom is deemed more more beautiful. So she's already picked up those things from people around, uh, from you know, watching the cartoons or whatever the hell. Is, is on is on television they, she, they, they pick up these cues so she already she understand understand that there is value in being lighter skin whether she believes it or, or not whether she internalized this or not she already believes that there is value in being lighter skin that's why she made the connection right when that incident happened she didn't say it's because I'm black she said it's because of the shade of my skin she's not wrong I don't think that this she the teacher would have had the same ease. Um, of throwing that toy if she was biracial or if she was really light-skinned. I don't believe so. That is the reality. But the reality mm -hmm. is it doesn't matter what I believe. It matters what she believes. What she believes is that it is a factor. And so my role is to honor her belief. It's not to say you're wrong, like our parents would try to do, right? You're wrong because they want to to um, kind of boost us or to make us feel less less sad. You're wrong, my darlings, nothing. But that's that's how we begin the process of guys liking our children. So that's the process yeah. that they are going to encounter in society. What they're going to say is racist and somebody going to say, you're wrong, <laughs> right? So we must not do that to our children. We must say, yes, you're likely right. But you know what? It's nothing to do with you and you're beautiful and you're gorgeous. But more than saying that, it's about how we do, right? Because if you yeah. say to your child, you're beautiful, but actually whenever you see a light skin child, like a sort of mixed race children in my family, I can tell you they treat it differently. You know that we black people, let's just keep it real. We know that <laughs> they treat it differently. And if my child is exposed to that, and then I say to her, well, yeah, no, you're beautiful. But then I see my, my nephew or my niece and I jump, my nibblings, I jump because they're biracial or because they have straight hair or whatever, the kind of stuff that we do. Then they're going to learn that, that what you say is not what you mean. So it's also been consistent in your politics, right? In your praxis. Yeah, that's a really good point. Aisha, you had your hand up. Oh, is that just about deliberate um, actions? And when, when we had Liz on and she talked about the fact that we need to be deliberate in our naming, but also in our responses. And I just think from what you were saying, Ghislaine, that really ties together because it's deliberate that the school 
you know, called you about Mimi and it's deliberate that the school acted the way that they did with your daughter and we need to be deliberate in our in the ways that we counteract how the world informs our children about themselves yeah you know i think that was such a really 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 good point i'm having to sit with that thank you what do you do for fun because this work is you know it's big it's it it can weigh you down it can whatever but what do you do for fun what does Interesting because you know my husband says that sometimes he said but you know you brief the stuff you leave the stuff you talk about it if you write about the stuff this is your practice can you but I'm really fundamentally I'm really passionate about it so it's it's a lot of the time I find it fulfilling um, of course it is hard and it is challenging at times but I find it fulfilling but there are still some stuff that are so important to me I love music so that's something that yes. you know some of you would know I love music I love African music and I love French Caribbean music. So I love Zouk. I'm yes. a massive, massive, massive Zouk and African music uh, fan. So I listen to music. It's the drum, it's, it's, the, um, it's the sensuality, it's the fluidity. All that I think connects me to, um, to life and I think connect me to love as well. This is something that sometimes we can be robbed of and deprived of when we experience trauma, when we experience um, racism, is the capacity to connect to love, right? The capacity mm -hmm. to connect to beauty and to joy. And so I try to be really deliberate in uh, making moments where I can connect with that, even if it's just listening to, to music or dancing or being silly with my girl, enjoying or taking the boys out to dinner, whatever. This little moment of, you know what? Life is not all misery and pain and suffering. There's also a lot of beauty in life. Sorry, I had yeah. to go. Yeah, well, I'm half Dominican, so I know all about Zook and stuff, because I think that is really important, because you've written that book, and it's called Living While Black, and it's also about living, you know what I mean? Like, we are really, really fun people as well, and we the, the capacity that we have to cope with stuff and the humour that develops. I mean, anything happens in you know life some of it is kind of cruel and whatever but i think it kind of has to be we develop this kind of gallows humor whenever any incident happens you go through black twitter there's a reason journalists mind black twitter to get uh reactions and to get stories and to copy because it's so fast it's so quick i mean we had gorilla glue girl and stuff and there was the seriousness of it but my goodness some of those tweets were absolutely <laughs> incredible they were hilarious and yeah I think it's that's the thing that I do and I wish I'd done a lot more when I was younger like I will take time out I will take rest times and people said how have you coped like since your daughter died and stuff and with everything that I've been put through and continually re-traumatized over the whole incident is I have a lot of fun like I will go out and music as well I just absolutely adore music and uh, you do cut, your heritage is Congolese, isn't it? Yeah. Undisputably best dancers in the entire world. I agree. In I the agree. entire world, like honestly. And I'm not saying that there's any real shabby countries from black dancing, but that is one that I was just like, wow, it's almost like um, they're made of water, <laughs> literally. It's you know the way, like you're looking at glass, and you have the like the, the water twisting. I think it's really important. Yeah, I I I I, I love Congolese music. Uh, I of course I love Congolese men dancing. 
I, I have to ask Nancy. I wouldn't mess about with congressmen, even if I was not married. Let's just put it on the table there. But they're dancing. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's an experience. So when I'm feeling a little bit down, I just go and watch me some congressmen dancing. <laughs> <laughs> some life advice there from Gillette. <laughs> Getting a little bit low, get yourself to a computer or a phone or whatever device you have that has access to the internet. Incredible, they are incredible. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing the interview with us, and I think there's a lot for people to take away from there. And uh, yeah, to see a little bit more of you with the interview and stuff. Where can we get your book? It was on pre-order, now it's out, out, out. Yesterday, thank you so much, Ava, for waiting to wish me happy publication day yesterday. Well, actually this morning up at night, it was really warm, really um, heartfelt. You can get the book in, I think in most bookstores, it's available on WH Smith, um, Waterstone, Amazon, of course. It's available everywhere. It's only £10. And I say it's only £10 because you know what? You're not going to get the kind of guidance, support, and strategies that are in the book from therapy. Let me just keep it real. You're just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Maybe in five, 10 years, when sufficient numbers of mental health professionals have read and developed their own practice around some of the issues that are raised in the book, you will. Right now, it's very, very unlikely. I know there's a few people that I trust with my heart and I would refer Black people, people of color, or anyone dealing with uh, discrimination and oppression to, but generally, maybe a handful so the chance of you getting someone who get this stuff and can support you quite slim right i charge really reasonably 75 pound an hour for therapy i don't have any vacancy so please don't get in touch but the book is 10 quid right it's 10 quid think about it it's 10 quid that is an absolute bargain seriously honestly like most books that come out like 16 17 so what we're going to do is we are going to put the uh, the links in the comments below and everyone can see where to order Ghislaine's book. Ghislaine, thank you. Thank you for coming and doing this. I know you're knackered. Uh, you are up for your publication. I know that like you have all the adrenaline running around and you're going to have a lot to do. So wishing you a lovely, lovely, happy day with your kids. Thank you for joining us. If you want to just stay on, we'll say a private goodbye. I'm going to say bye to everybody watching. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.